really excited about today and just really this first quarter of 2020. Just believe the Lord is carrying on a conversation that he began with us. Well, from before we were born, I suppose. But certainly this last year, the Lord just said, I want you to build an altar. I want you to set your heart to build a place where uh, we're about to roll out our new times in like two weeks of morning, noon, and night, worship with the word and prayer, where you provide a space and a place for your people and working, any people to come and to just be in God's presence, to read and reflect on and sing his word and declare it back to him. And so... Uh, really, for these, these next few months, I really want to just zero in on what does that mean to become a people who build the altar. Another way of saying it is to become a people of prayer. Another way to say it is to become a people of his presence. Another, another, another way to say it is a people who just are blown away that we get to have a relationship with God. I mean... Did I hit everybody in those sequence of descriptions of altar, presence, prayer? Many of these things, they seem nebulous, but then when we just say, you know what prayer is? It's relationship. It's that way we commune with and have a relationship with God. Then everyone's like, okay, I'm into that. I want to grow in that. I want to grow in relationship. And so today the talk is called Prayer, Closing the Gap of Separation. I'm just going to run, run, and I am going to run through just, I've been living in like the first four chapters of Genesis all week. It's been so powerful. So I'm not going to read four chapters, but I, I just want to touch on some things and then make the argument of why that's, that the talk is called Closing the Gap of Separation. Separation of between who, you might ask. We'll get there. And then here's the punchline. If you walk away with anything at all, at all, This is the argument I'll make throughout the talk. Calling on the Lord at the altar closes the gap and establishes a place for heaven to flood the earth. That'll be my thesis. That's what I will come back to. That's what we're going to look at as we weave through those first four chapters of the biblical story and how by the end of the talk, my dream and desire would be that your, like I said earlier in worship, your spiritual palate would be provoked That the bar of your expectation, what you think of when you think of prayer or building an altar, both personally and corporately, that you wouldn't just think, oh, that's for some other people, that the Holy Spirit would say, no, that call is for you. That's right, even you. Short attention span, distracted in 20 seconds, even you. Bored the second you open your Bible, even you, filled with guilt and shame, and God wouldn't want me if He really knew me. Even you, He wants you. It's all my personality. I'm more of like work with my hands. Even you can build an altar. Who is prayer for? Every person on the planet. Why? Because prayer equals relationship, and He wants a relationship with every person on the planet. And so when we get to the end of Genesis 4, where at that time men begin to call on the name of the Lord, we're going to find ourselves swept up to that place. What does it mean to call on his name? So really quick, in the beginning there was God, right? 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful Trinitarian dance of joyful submission, self-emptying, others-oriented love, Father-loving Son, Son-loving Holy Spirit, Spirit, and there's just this dance. You can't tell where one ends and begins, but they're three distinct but one God. This love story is how the story begins. And that God, Jesus said, and I love Jesus because he's how we can relate to that God. Amen? I'm glad God put skin and bone on so he could say, this is what I'm like. How many are thankful that God comes to us on our level? He stoops so that we can know. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. Do you see the movement? Father loving son, son loving world. We're invited into that great dance. We're invited into that great relationship. Jesus takes it up 10 notches in his prayer before the cross. I want those, Father, he's talking to his dad, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am to see my glory. And here he goes back to the Father, the glory you gave me because you love me before. Everyone say before. Before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, there's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving each other, bursting with delight and desire over the other. And he creates this God who loved the world is the God who then speaks the world into existence. Why? Not because he lacked one ounce of perfection. Not because in his nature there was somehow a lack that only humanity could, could fill. He creates and speaks because he loves. And his spoken word is an invitation to relate to the one who speaks. So he creates out of just sheer goodness. Because he, he loves and he wants to invite you and I into that sacred dance with him. Six days he forms and he fills the heavens and the earth out of sheer delight for the singular purpose, yes, singular purpose, to create a space for the pinnacle of his creation, his image bearers, to flourish and thrive and blossom and multiply. Like six days, forming, filling, forming, filling, forming, filling. On that sixth day, you and I bear his image. He creates a garden for us to flourish and experience his delight in. Oh, communion with God, dominion with God. Priests, notice there's no temple in that garden because all of it's holy space because God's presence is just unmediatingly just shining and shimmering on everything. All of this points to the reality that before sin, there is no separation. There's no separation. There's just the holiness and brilliance of God, humans who bear his mark and image, and there's just this beautiful friendship, no separation between God and humanity or God and creation. And he gives them this great creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue, to share in his royal authority over creation. So that what has not yet been cultivated, drawn out, or actualized, he, God does with us and through us. Unbelievable scenario. That's Genesis 1 and 2, basically. So good. And then it crescendos with this weird remark that 
is not weird or incidental. It's the end of the epilogue of this sort of chapter two creation narrative. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Naked and no shame. So Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, he speaks, he forms, he fills, he gives the mandate, right? And at the very end, he's saying, oh, and by the way, this, these royal priests, these little kings and little queens that I have put in charge to rule on my behalf with me, they're naked and there's no shame. This is the epitome of, of communion, intimacy, and covenant relationship. There's no separation between us. God's like, it's very good. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's very good. It's very good. This is, this, is, this, is this is where we come from. No shame. And we all know that in the very next page, the story changes dramatically. Right? The story changed. The enemy lies. And here's what he says in a nutshell. Leave the boundaries that the Lord has set out of his sheer love and desire for your flourishing. Cross the borders and you become the center of all things. How many know God when he said, you can be fruitful, the whole garden is yours. Just don't eat from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those are borders and boundaries, not because he's grubby or grouchy or he's mean-spirited, but because he knows that he is the only one who sees the beginning from the end, therefore is the only one to speak to that which is truly moral, truly good, and truly bad. Because he sees every path's end because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the only one worthy to name this is good, this is bad, not you and I. We don't see the full picture. It's not in our capacity to be suitable, uh, fit, uh, centerpieces that decide good, bad, flourishing, death, only God can see the beginning from the end. And so the enemy says, leave the boundaries and you name what's good. How many have ever tasted of that fruit where you left the boundaries, the beautiful boundaries because of his love, and you ventured out, you crossed the border, and what you found was not garden 2.0, what you found was a wasteland. When we go outside of the beautiful boundaries of our Lord, of his, of his covenant, of his wisdom, of his word, we're not improving on what we could experience if we were submitted to him. We actually start experiencing non-life instead of that which is promised us by the enemy and his lies. The enemy says, don't rule with God in his kingdom, but forge and fashion your own. We've been building our own little versions since then, did God really say the enemy tempts the couple? Did he really say? He's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. You guys are the ones who should be calling the shots. Oh, this is the be one of the best definitions of sin I've seen in my life. I read it this week in, in study. Sin consists of an illicit reach for unbelief. It's an assertion of human autonomy to know morality apart from God. In other words, to be the ones who rule the world apart from him. What I hate about how the enemy works is he sows seeds of doubt in the couple's mindset. 
And he promises them things outside of their relationship with God that God in his sheer love and goodness had already given them. He's so sneaky. They're already the highest delegated authority on the earth. God's holding out on you. He knows if you eat that one tree, he said not to do. Everything else you can't do, it's yours, flourishing. And he tempts them with something they already possess. I mean, we could just stop right there and preach for a minute. (laughs) All of those things that pull you to reach for autonomy, which is sort of that selfishness, that self Regard for you over and against everybody else. Everything we reach for, the Lord actually wants to bring us if we'll submit to his ways. Because every sin is just a mutation of that which was good in the beginning. The enemy has no creative power. He can only modify that which God originally said was good. For example, sex within the context of marriage. How many believe that's good? Yes. It's beautiful. Two covenant partners, male, female, bearing the mark and image of God, submitting their life to the other with God at the center. There's nothing more beautiful. But the enemy says, you can have it when you want. So he takes something beautiful, sin, and he mutates and mutilates it. And and instead of that which is for the flourishing of humankind becomes for the detriment, the death, and the decay of humankind. This is the reality of sin. You won't certainly die. And you're right. If you read Genesis 3, it's not like they eat the fruit and, you know. (laughs) It's way worse. It would be a slow, gut-wrenching death. And this first couple would have to experience pain that I can't even imagine. The death of one of their children. It wasn't an immediate death. It was this slow, they opened up a way thinking they were fit to rule apart for, from and over and against God. And it seemed right. Eve appealed to her logic and her desire for power, the ability to assert her own thoughts and will. And it seemed right, but in the end, it leads to death. And we're living in a cultural moment where everything around the church and sort of orthodox Christianity, truth, bend and bow to our ideology, take the edge off the truth of God and gospel. But friends, when we begin to bow and modify and morph instead of just receiving God on his kingdom covenant terms, we don't open up a path that makes it easier for people to find life. We Bring people on a path that in the end will be death if it's not his way. I love this. For the wages of sin is death. I don't love it. I hate it. I hate that. And I was thinking, how often do you get wages from your workplace? Because most of us just think, oh, the wages of sin is death, hell someday, forever. But how many of you get wages every two weeks? You won't certainly die. You're right, serpent. They won't immediately die. But when they choose apart from God and they assert self and the place of God that he alone is fit to rule and reign in, you and I, you you don't just experience death at the end. You draw on the wages of death all along the way. 
That's why people, it's so tragic, and we, we believe in victory and breakthrough for if you're in addiction, but for those who have addictions, it's not, you don't have to tell the person that's loving that person, trying to see them heal, that, oh, someday it's death. No, the family experiences the wages, the pulling from the reality of death right here, right now, all along the way. See, sin is way more serious than we can think. It's not a big deal negotiating with God and deciding apart from him. It's a big deal. Why? Because eventually the bank called treason will call your bluff and demand full payment of the way you've been saying leads to life, but he knows leads to death. And here's the point of the sermon, prayer. Ready? As a result of all, the gap is introduced. Everyone say gap. Because what's the, what's the reality? Now we're in Genesis 3. What happens when they sin? <laughs> Separation. There's a gap between us and God, between us and each other, us and ourselves, us and creation. And that garden temple that was the most immaculate context for humanity to thrive they're banished, they're exiled from that perfect place. And here's what's amazing. I, I read several commentaries just living in this passage all week. What's so stunning is many of us think if, if the context was just, if, if my situation was just better, then I would obey God. Commentators are in unanimous saying there will never be a better context for obedience than the garden, and still it wasn't enough. What does that mean? It means the grace of God can find you whatever place you find yourself in today. No matter how dark, no matter how hopeless or helpless or bleak your sin, though it weighs a ton, there is something heavier and weightier in the kingdom of God called His mercy and His grace. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's right here in the Genesis story. As a result of their separation and the introduction of the gap for first time in human history, first time, the ground is cursed. There's enmity between humanity and the serpent. Painful labor. Sorry, I've seen it four times. <sighs> Broken relationships, painful toil and work, thorns and thistles. How many green thumbs out there? Aren't you, don't you just hate thorns and thistles? Scarcity instead of abundance. This again is apart from the Lord. And so I say theologically, the fall is the biggest understatement of epic proportions. The fall. <laughs> That's what it's called, the fall. But the fall. So here's what, was the worst. This is the worst part of the fall. So God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Edom cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Banishment. This is the first exile of humanity. But why does he do it? Why does he banish them? I was marked as a college student from hearing the seminary professor, Dr. Ed Robinson, bless him. I was 20, 19 and I still remember a sermon 
which I don't remember hardly any in my life, but I'll never forget at that college retreat back in, in, in Kansas City, he said this was the greatest act of God's love outside of giving his son. Banishing Adam and Eve, because why? Because they, the gap. They had revelation that there was separation. They had revelation that there was shame. Remember? They had revelation that they were not sufficient to rule a world in which God was pushed to the margins, not at the center. They had revelation of their strife and enmity against each other. She made me do it. He made me do it. No, the serpent. These realities introduced because of sin, God says, I can't let them reach out and take the tree of life because there's no way my image bearers are going to live forever with the reality of the gap in their life. Dr. Ed Robinson, I was nine, I remember, I'm 30, almost 36. Still, so that one line in his message, it was the greatest act of love. He says, nope, no way I'm letting you live forever out of that reality because that's not how I made you. And I want you to know today, just as I continue, that if you are not living in the awareness of God's nearness, his love, and his presence, that's not how you were made. There's hope for you today. If it feels like he's super far or super distant or, man, you've made such a mess, you didn't just eat from a tree, you feel like you destroyed your life, your family, your, uh, your former marriage, your, your, your business relationship, you've squandered your wealth, I want you to know there's hope for you today. There's hope. There's absolute hope. Because even here, even here, the gospel of Jesus explodes from the page. Why? I love it. Before they're banished, he provides them with garments. It's the very first sacrifice. Prophetic picture. Your fig leaves will never be sufficient. I will forever be the only one who can sufficiently cover your nakedness, your shame, and your brokenness. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. Walter Brueggemann, one of the smartest, best sort of Old Testament theologians, says, with the sentence given, God does for the couple what they could not do for themselves. They could create a world, but they can't cover their shame. You see? But God can, will, and does. Through his sacrifice, he restores the alienated couple to fellowship with him and with each other. How many believe in the God who can do for us what we could never do for ourselves? Ever. 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 He covers it. Before he banished out of his sheer love so they wouldn't live forever with the gap, with the separation and the shame, he provides garments. Even in judgment, somehow his mercy ekes out. Friends, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. They deserve way worse. He's infinitely kind. He doesn't budge or bow to our naming of good and evil, but he's infinitely kind, gracious. And what we find outside of the garden, and he banishes them, is that there's a quick spiral downward. I don't know who said it originally, but sin takes you faster and further than you wanted to go and keeps you there longer than you wanted to stay. 
not my one-liner. How many have heard that one? Takes you further and faster than you wanted to go, and it keeps you there. So what we find outside of the garden is that the steam of treason and rebellion just picks up. Cain kills his brother, Abel, because of jealousy and envy. God favored Abel's offering because it was his first fruit. It was costly. It was the best of what he had to offer. So sibling rivalry, anyone ever experienced sibling sibling rivalry or jealousy? Well, there you go. Thank you, Cain and Abel. And look at this. This is gnarly. The result. When you work the ground, Cain, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a, say it with me, restless wanderer on the earth. One more time. Restless wanderer. Do you see the irony here? What was the first thing God gave the humans to do in day six, spilling over into day seven? Rest. He gave them the Sabbath. You see, this is the, this is the writer of Genesis, brilliant. He gave him a day of rest. What is Cain? He's restless. And what did he do when he gave them Eden but give them the most beautiful home to live? And so we see in one verse the antitheses of the two glorious realities because of sin and because of the gap of sin. How many have ever felt like a restless wanderer? (laughs) Restless and I'm wandering. There's no home. I have no place to lay my head. I don't have a place to belong. I don't have, I'm not aware of a father who loves me or a people that receive me and all of my mess and are devoted to me in the long-haul project of my transformation. How many have experienced the restless wandering? And Cain's like, I can't bear what you just said. I can't do it. You're driving me from the land, and now I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be, a rest, again, a restless wanderer all the days on the earth. What we see right here, friends, is that we were not made to live apart from the Lord. Come on. He didn't design us to live apart from him. And if prayer is closing that gap, do you think prayer might go from number 10 or 12 or 15 on our list to maybe near the very top? If prayer and friendship is how I cultivate relation, how I live in his presence and experience his nearness, his provision, his word, his tenderness... His reality in the midst of my restless wandering. I wasn't made to live apart from him. So just by way of a side point, if you have family members who aren't experiencing the life that Jesus came to give us, you don't have to wonder, do I have a right and authority to contend that they would know and experience the presence of God. You have a mandate because they bear the mark of God to contend that they would know God in his presence. What about him or what about her or them? They're too hopeless. No, every human on the planet by virtue of their creational design was made to live in relationship with the Lord. Every one of them. Every one of them. Man, woman, boy, girl. Every nation, tribe, language, tongue was made for him. I love it. We see that the sin is anti-creation. It, just, it deteriorates that which God said was good. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod. 
east of Eden. Everybody say east of Eden. If you read Genesis 1 through 11, the further east, the darker it gets. That's why I live in California, people. Come on. Come on, a land of revival. Right? A land of God's presence. And so we see, I don't have time, I'm going to skip a bunch, but he has seven, they give him seven offspring, it's like completeness, and it goes from violent, mar, mar, marred by violence, Cain, and then marked by violence, Lemek, and he, it just gets gnarly, violence and hatred and strife, the seven uh, offspring from Cain, it just gets more wicked, more wicked, terrible, 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 that's on purpose, Genesis is setting something up. Because way back in the garden, God said that I'm going to give Eve an offspring to crush the serpent's head. And Adam and Eve were like, there's no way it's Cain. He killed his brother. So God in his sheer, here's what's amazing. God in his sheer mercy to replace Abel, Adam made love to his wife again and she gave birth to a son named Seth. Say Seth. And she said, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son named Enosh. Say Enosh. And here's the point of the message. I had to get us there because none of it makes sense if you don't get the good stuff before. At that time, read the last line with me. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time. At that time. We see, if you just read, just, I and I challenge you this week, just read Genesis 1 through 4. You'll get way goodies, just the Lord, you and the Lord, and commentaries or internet, whatever, YouTube. There's all kinds of good stuff. But I just want to zero on for a minute that at that time. At that time, when God gave Eve another son, through whom the seed, the offspring would come, who would crush the serpent and finally and definitively seal and usher in God's eternal purposes and plans. And I'm telling you, central to that purpose and plan is that you and I would be restored to his presence. We'd be restored to his to relationship with him where that gap would be closed, not just once, but perpetually until the end of the age where we see another temple, a garden temple, a city. It's as big as a city Come from the sky, a new heavens and a new earth where we will live in unbridled affection and communion and relationship with the Lord. But what I argue is that every time you and I call on his name now, that gap is closed and a little bit of that eternal city heavenly reality can break into your reality. Every time. Every, when? Every time. Call on the name of the Lord. A new line of hope. I love this. Enosh in the Hebrew is super similar to Adam. It's God prophetically saying, I've not given up hope for humanity. Adam made a mess of it, but there's another Adam coming who is going to usher in my purposes. And here's, this is just all I did. How would I know this unless I read a bunch of stuff? Enosh means weakness. And in his weakness, he's the one who at that time begins to call on the Lord. You see, here's what I'm convinced of. Oh, and Abel means vapor or breath. And then here's the, this is the ultimate one-liner, uh, uh, direct quote. I didn't write this. Abel signifies insignificance. Who's ever bought that lie? That you're not significant, I don't have a purpose or a plan, or somebody else is better than me. But it's his offering God accepts. 
Enosh, his name means weakness, but he's the one who begins to institute this calling on the name, offering the Lord prayers and praises and petitions. These two together express true religion. Here's what I, listen, here's what I'm convinced of. All of the reasons you think you wouldn't be good at prayer or good at relationship with God or you wouldn't be wanted by God, all those things that you think make you insignificant or that write your future off because of your past, all of those things, you, I'm weak, I can't hold an attention, and I, I read it and then I forget it and then I try to live it, but I, sometimes I don't. I sort of stink. I can't get along with my colleague at work. My marriage is on the rocks. All of those things that you think write you off and write you out of God's redemptive story, that weakness and that sense of insignificant, turn that thing into a posture of I can't, but you can, and together we will. All of those voices that say no, stay in Nod, that land that's banished outside of his presence at that time, they begin to call on his name. And when you call on his name, that gap that you feel, you may not feel it closes, but from heaven's perspective, he comes breaking in. He says, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you. You are not insignificant. Your weakness is not the end. I love to take the brokenness of humanity and make something beautiful with it and through it. It's my favorite thing. Prayer is the ultimate sign of weakness. We're, ta- we're, we're calling out. We can't do it. But it's in my weakness, Paul, the greatest church planner in history, it's in my weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, that his grace and his perfection, his, his grace is made perfect. In other words, his strength and enabling power and provision and abundance, it, its landing zone is the confession of your and I's weakness. Where does his power, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. He has infinite resources of strength and grace and mercy and help. And where does all of that stuff, the reality of who he is, when he looks from his heavenly throne upon the image-bearing people who continue to choose over and against him instead of submit to him. But when one of his imagers says, I can't, I'm weak, I'm insignificant, I made a mess, and we call on his name, at that moment, heaven opens and his provision is released. At that moment, at that very moment, when we call on his name, when we call on his name, he can't resist. He, he just can't resist being apart from us. He hates it. You know who hates sin more than anyone in the whole planet and all the created world and everything? God. He hates it. But he's made provision. He's made provision. All right. Let's close. Are we all okay? If sin is a breach of trust, reaching for autonomy, then prayer is calling on the Lord to restore the relationship, closing the gap. Right here, right here, right here, at the end of Genesis 4, people began to invoke and call on his presence, the presence that was lost at the fall. And when we call on his name, this is a beautiful picture of prayer. That relationship, I'm calling out. Why did God speak? Why did he create? Not because he lacked anything, because he loves relationship. 
when we speak and then when we listen to the response, what do you think that fortifies, fashions, builds up, and strengthens? Relationship, friendship with God. Call on the name of the Lord. Right here. I love this. This is why we're trying to build an altar of morning, noon, and night. Corporate, so that that corporate can inspire and infuse your private or your personal, and we just keep the cycle going. We, how many want to just, we want to just call on his name morning, noon, and night. Because when do we need the power and provision of heaven? Only occasionally. <sighs> when the situation's really bleak and dire. No, I need him all the time. I don't know about you. I am a mess without him. But he's made provision called calling on his name where I can experience moment-by-moment relationship with him. All right. Don't have time. Don't have time. Don't have time. This is it. I'm going to land it here. This is so good. Luke gives us a picture of what actually happens when we pray. Oh, this is good. Because you're like, prayer, I still don't get it. Do I have to bow my head, grasp my fingers? No. (laughs) You don't have to. Is it the eloquence of my, no, no, no. Look at this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Read it with me. And as he was praying, heaven was open. Hold on, hold on. As he was praying, heaven was open. And then the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily like a dove, and a voice said, you're my son whom I love. So you have identity, you have destiny, you have purpose released in the place of prayer. But the point I want to underscore is that when he prays, heaven's open. Now here's the theological question. How far away is heaven? Sort of, we're children of the enlightenment of the 1800s, 1900s. We think God is this old dude on a rocker way upstairs. That is not the biblical worldview. Heaven, God's space, earth, human space, like, this is why we can entertain angels without even knowing it, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. His space isn't some far, Acts 17 says, God's not far from any of us. He designed the places and spaces and times in history for every person to be born so that in that place they might call out to him and he would respond. So when he prays, heaven's not like this, it's like, At the place of prayer, heaven is opened. God. I don't. That old choir room. It's right through those doors. You can get to it on the outside. That little place we call the altar is a place of open heaven. Your prayer closet. That's your lazy boy with your coffee or your workload. Whenever you turn your heart and you call on his name, you're partnering with the one who blasted a hole in the heavenlies. And you call and he wants to respond and release his power provision. It's never hopeless because you always have prayer. It's never where despair or darkness have the final word. Even in death, the Lord has vanquished death through resurrection life. Oh, they weren't healed. They weren't healed. He didn't respond. Keep contending. How often should you ask? You keep on. How often should I seek? Keep seeking. How often should I knock? Oh, you must be busy. No, he's not busy. When you don't see the answer around you, it's because maybe he's doing the deeper answer in you so that when the answer comes, you're fit to carry that forth. As he was praying, heaven was open. God's dimension 
and domain flooded the earthly dimension in the Son, Jesus. Heaven's not way up there. This is God's space. And as I, I said it already, I'm sorry. He's, he's, and here's what I love. This is the revelation I got literally just this morning before finalizing this. So when Jesus, pray, you're like, well, my prayers don't open heaven. Some may think that, because that's pretty steep confession. Would we agree? That's, that's kind of gnarly. Me praying? <laughs> Me? I'm weak. I'm insignificant. All right, we covered that already. But look at this. He's able to save completely. That's Jesus, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hold on. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. What does that mean? Let me, I'm just going to be straight with you. Oh, sorry. What does that mean? If when Jesus prays, heaven opens, and we just read two verses, a mashup that's saying Jesus lives to intercede, he's praying, contending. Well, what that means is that heaven is perpetually open. That deserved, I think, better amens. But I, it, I thought that was cool. I thought that was cool, Revelation, because when he prays, heaven opens. We're like, well, he's not on the earth anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father in glory, Hebrews 1. And he sat down. His work was completed, Hebrews 10. No, 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 no. He's living. He's perpetually interceding, contending that Father's provision through him and now released through the Spirit would be released over his people, released over his people, released over the people. So even though you and I may stink at prayer, we're on a journey, on a quest. When our little prayer leaves our heart, our mind, or our our lips, it finds that heaven is open because there's one who's praying for you. His prayer life does not stink. Why? Why is heaven always open? Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. He's the one who stands in the gap. Oh, I hope you never think when you enter the place of prayer, you're initiating or starting something. You are responding something that started a long time ago. That's a good word. Oh, my goodness sakes. So turn to your neighbor and say, heaven's open. It's open, man. Do you think that the reason, the only thing the disciples who were Jesus' up close and personal three-year students, they slept by him, they ate the food he ate, they walked in his path, that the only thing they wanted to be taught by him was how to pray? It's the only thing recorded in Scripture in Luke chapter, uh, Luke, uh, uh, Luke chapter 11. Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because there was something about that exchange, that posture and orientation that Jesus' life provoked them to say, wherever you are, there's power when it's needed. Wherever you are, there's forgiveness where you're needed. Wherever you are, Jesus, we've watched you for three years. There's healing that can flow. Wherever you are, you can interrupt funeral processions. Wherever you are, you're living out of a reality that we've got to know why. And they, they narrowed it down. Teach us to pray like you. That place of relating, of friendship, that place of, of communing with, and then what we see and hear and how he forms us in that place called prayer, he then can release anything he wants through us to further his kingdom. <laughs> oh, okay. That's why we're trying to build an altar. We're not done yet, man. We're just getting started of morning, noon, and night because we want to do this together and individually. 
we want to just we want to be an altar people and all that that means we're going to unpack for for several months but how many are how many are provoked to raise the bar of what they think of when they think of prayer that's my goal to start to start so calling here's the punchline again calling on the name of the lord at the altar closes the gap we talked about the gap for 30 minutes of sin and establishes a place for heaven to flood the earth. And friends, contrary to popular sort of secular ideology, we're not progressing our way out of human brokenness, bondage, and sin. We need a savior. We need help from above. Heaven needs to flood the earth, man. Justice that reigns from the one who's on his throne needs to roll down like a river. Our vocation is not self-improvement. It's call on the name of the Lord and partner with the one who shows up when we call on him. <laughs> Yay. All right, done. We're done. I don't, I'm not, I'll save all this for next week. Can you stand on your feet? Just stand on your feet. You say, Chad, there's a gap. There's a gap in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. I want you to know that one has crossed that gap. Jesus, he's come to us, friends. He's come to us, and he's shown us how to have a relationship with God. And so if there is that separation, that shame, anything that was already described, that, that sense of insignificance or weakness, can you just put your hand on your heart? And instead of hiding in those things, can't you just say, Lord, I'm bringing them into your light? Those things, I think, disqualify me, actually set me up to be a recipient of your love and your mercy. <laughs> Those lies that the enemy says that you don't deserve it or you're not good enough. All of those lies can become springboards in the name of grace. So God, we come to you in our nakedness and shame. And we receive your covering, your cleansing, your healing. God, those things that we say, I could never be. No, we bring all of those excuses and we just bundle them up and put them at the altar. And say, Lord, consume us with your healing love. Forgive us. Like Enosh, Lord, we are weak, but Lord, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time. Father, I pray over these next few months and years, you would show us great and unsearchable things as we set our hearts to become a people of prayer, a people of your presence. Father, I pray right now that you would provoke every man, woman, and boy and girl in this place and those watching online, that they would go on a journey with you in this place of partnering with you in prayer, in relationship. We're going to unfold that over the weeks ahead. But God, right now, we just want to say thank you. Come on. He, is, he has crossed the distance. He has spanned the gap. And he said, you can come home. You don't have to be a, a wandering, restless wanderer any longer. There's a place called home and a God called Father with your name on it. So, Lord, make us a people of your presence. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen.